The following sermon is by Dr. Chuck Register, Interim Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. Take your Bible and come with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. As you're turning, I want to remind you of our Christmas Eve service 5 p.m., of course, on the 24th of December, as we gather here for a wonderful time of carols and communion and candlelight. Uh, I make a commitment to you. It will be a most beautiful service uh, of the year, uh, but it will be a service that is contained within about 50 minutes. Uh, We know that there are very uh, many family traditions that occur on Christmas Eve. I hope one of yours is to pause for worship of the Christ child on Christmas Eve. And so we certainly don't apologize for inviting you to gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ to worship the Christ child on Christmas Eve. But we do want you to be able to spend time with family, uh, some who will have traveled from afar to be with you. And so we'll gather Christmas Eve at 5 p.m. here in the worship center for worship. We've been walking through angelic messages of Christmas two weeks ago. When we gathered and began this sermon series, we examined the angel's message to Mary. Last week, I'm so thankful Dr. Sandy Marks was with you while Charlene and I were away. I just continue to hear wonderful comments about Dr. Marks and his preaching. Uh, He's a wonderful colleague at the Baptist State Convention. Today, we continue that sermon series by looking at the angel's message to Joseph. Then next Sunday morning, we'll conclude this series by looking at the angel's message to the shepherds. So take your Bible in hand, Matthew chapter 1. I'll invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. You'll follow along reading silently as I read aloud, beginning with verse 18. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. As we study today and we look into the life of Joseph, we're going to see, first of all, what Scripture teaches us about the man... Joseph himself. There we're going to examine the message that the angel gives Joseph. And through Joseph, he gives to you and to me this Christmas season. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Father, would you help us to take a familiar story 
this morning and to peel back the layers of spiritual truth that we might see the heart of this message delivered to a man whose life we can emulate today. Lord, would you help us to take these biblical principles and not only listen and understand, but to apply so that in the week ahead we might live like Joseph and we might embrace the doctoral teachings laden in this passage. And we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. As you're being seated, we begin looking this morning at this man, Joseph, this man who has chosen not to be the father of Jesus, but to be his guardian. And as we begin our study, we see in verse 19 that, first of all, Joseph is a man of fairness. A man of fairness. Look with me in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, speaking of Mary, and Joseph, Mary's husband, and here's the phrase, being a righteous man. The word being that's used there, ladies and gentlemen, is a word that, that speaks of continual action. It speaks not of simply a single solitary event or action in Joseph's life, but, but it speaks of his lifestyle, if you will. Now, what we're about to understand about Joseph applies to Joseph not only when he's in, in the audience of the religious leaders of his day, not only when he's spending time with his family or when he's in the circle with his friends, but every moment of Joseph's day is characterized by this next statement. His habit, his conduct, his lifestyle, his constant behavior is described in this phrase. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. So scripture says that Joseph is a righteous man, not just on the Sabbath day, not just when he is in the audience, if you will, of the religious leaders of his culture, but, but Joseph is a righteous man habitually. His behavior is characterized as a righteous man. His character and behavior is described as being a righteous man. The word righteous that's used there is a word that can literally be translated fair. He's a fair man. So the first thing we learn about this man, Joseph, who is about to be the guardian of the Christ child, the guardian of the Messiah, the protector, if you will, of the babe of Bethlehem, he is a man whose lifestyle is characterized by fairness. And then scripture gives us a glimpse into the fair lifestyle of Joseph. Come back to the text. Look with me, if you will, again at verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, having this lifestyle characterized by fairness, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. What does that mean? Well, this phrase, plan to send her away, is a word, a phrase that speaks of divorce. But Scripture says that Joseph, upon learning that Mary is expecting a child, plans to send her away privately. And in that concept, ladies and gentlemen, we see a sterling example of Joseph's fairness. You see, Joseph had certain rights in the first century. Joseph had the right in the first century for a public divorcement and for Mary to be permanently punished. 
As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy helps us to see that in Scripture. Look with me at this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 22. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. This may not play well in our culture, but it was the standard of the first century. Joseph had certain rights. To protect his honor, he discovers that Mary is expectant. He knows the child cannot possibly be his. He has the right to divorce her publicly, to bring her before the elders of the city, and to shame her. And he has the right to drag her outside the city gate and to have her stoned to death to protect his honor and his family's honor. But Joseph, Joseph is a man of fairness. Joseph's life is one that is characterized day in and day out by asking the question, what's the fair thing to do in every situation? So in fairness... Joseph says, I'm going to divorce her, but I'm going to do it secretly. No shame, no disgrace heaped upon Mary than that which she will already bear. No dragging her out to be punished until death. I'm going to divorce her, but it's going to be done secretly. My father was a high school football coach. He was the father of three boys. I'm the youngest of three but he coached hundreds of boys through the years. My dad always tried to instill in his sons and in his players three rules for life. Number one, do your best. Number two, do what's right. And number three, treat others the way you want to be treated. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a beautiful description of this man, Joseph. He's not looking to avenge his honor in Matthew chapter 1. He's not looking to protect his reputation and his good name. He's just asking some simple questions. What's the right thing to do? What's the fair thing to do? And I want to treat Mary as I would want to be treated. So we see in this text, first of all, he's a man of fairness. Secondly, now I want you to see that, that he's a man of faith. Come with me, if you will, over to Luke's gospel, and, and let's see where Luke points out for us on two different occasions how important Joseph's faith is to him. Look with me, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. When we get to Luke chapter 2, verse 21... The Christ child is now eight days of age. And the story picks up there. And when eight days had passed, eight days since the birth of Jesus, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they, Joseph and Mary, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Why? Verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young 
pigeons. What's happening in this patch of scripture? Joseph's faith is on display. He's a good Hebrew. He's a good Jewish husband and father. And he knows according to the customs of his faith that means so much to his life. They know on the eighth day, he is to bring his son to the temple and there dedicate him to the Lord. And so he lives out his faith in this moment for us to see. But then come with me, if you will, to verse 41. And let's see his faith being lived out once again. When we get to Luke chapter 2, verse 39, Jesus is no longer eight years of age. We have fast forward the tape of his life, and Jesus is now 12 years of age. Look what the Bible says, verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Every year. Everywhere, Joseph takes his family and he travels to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Why? Because his faith is central to his life. His faith is not something that he simply observes on the Sabbath. His faith is integral to everything that he does and the person that he is. And so every year he travels to Jerusalem because his faith is central to his life. Jesus, now being 12 years of age, is escorted with the family to the temple. He's a man of fairness and he's a man of faith. The third thing I want you to see about Joseph is that he's a man of faithfulness. Come back with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We get to peek three times into the life of Joseph where we see him simply being faithful at every turn. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 24. The angel, as we read a moment ago, has spoken to Joseph. He has told Joseph to take Mary to be his wife. And look what happens in verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife. Ladies and gentlemen, I would say to you, there are no more powerful words written in the New Testament about any individual than those. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Yes, he's a man of fairness. And yes, he's a man of faith. But in acting in faithfulness and taking Mary to be his wife, he risked everything about his reputation and the honor of his family. He's about to marry someone who is expectant. When the birth takes place and the months are calculated, everyone will know that Joseph is not the father. He's laying all of his reputation and all of his honor, not only for himself, but for his entire family. He's laying it on the line. Why does he do that? Why does he not argue with the angel? Why does he not question the angel? Why does he simply awaken from this conversation with the angel and simply obey? Because he's a man of faithfulness. He hears from the Lord, and he's obedient to the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, this act of faithfulness, this obedient faithfulness from Joseph that we see is repeated over and over in Scripture. Let me show you two other examples. Come with me, if you will, to chapter 2, verse 13. 
chapter 2, verse 13. Look what happens in verse 13. Now when they had gone, who are they? They're the Magi from the east. They've come to worship the Christ child. Most historians, theologians tell us that Jesus is now probably a young toddler. He's not the babe at Bethlehem. He's, he's grown to be a young toddler, and the Magi from the east have come to worship. Look what happens. Verse 13, now when they had gone, the Magi from the east, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14, here it is again, his faithfulness. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Can you imagine that conversation? The angel appears to Joseph. He says, Joseph, I want you to immediately, I want you to wake up. I, I want you to take Mary and Jesus, and I want you to, to, to go into a distant country away from your family, away from your friends, away from your occupation, your business as a carpenter that you've established. I want you to leave everything behind, and I want you to go. The Bible says that as Joseph awakens from that dream in which the angel speaks to him, he doesn't even wait till daylight. He begins packing whatever they're going to need for the journey. Can you imagine the conversation with Mary? How many mothers do we have here this morning? Would you admit that? I, I know some, some children you don't really want to admit, but some children you do. Remember when you were a new mom with that first child? When you didn't know what to do? They didn't give you the manual at the hospital when the baby was born? That this cry means this and that cry means something else. They, they didn't give you any of that. So what did you do? Probably you were very dependent on perhaps your mother or your husband's mother. Well, your mother. <laughs> friends. Someone to give you advice. Someone you could pick up the telephone and say, I, I, I've tried everything I know to do. We've, we've given him a bath and we fed him and he won't stop crying. What, what should I try? You needed someone to coach you through the parenting process. And here's Joseph saying to Mary, we're going to leave your family and we're going to leave my family and we're going to go somewhere where we don't know a living soul. And we're going to do it because I just had a dream. And the angel says, we have to go. What a man of faithfulness unto the Lord. But that's not the last instance that we see in Scripture. Come back and look with me. Matthew chapter 2, just a few verses later, verse 19. Let's see what happens. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Joseph and Mary are now settled in Egypt. He, he, he's opened up a new carpenter shop franchise. He, they've made some friends. They've set themselves up and established themselves. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 21, so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. 
And ladies and gentlemen, the truth is we learn very little about Joseph from this point forward. But when we see him in Scripture, he's a man of fairness. He's a man of faith. And every time he hears from the Lord, he's a man of faithfulness. Oh, I contend to you this morning that if you and I can simply emulate this man, Joseph, our Lord would smile upon us. That the habit in our life would to do that which is right and to treat others as we want to be treated, to do the fair thing, that we would be people who are faithful to the Lord, that, that our spiritual convictions mean so much that they dictate the way we live, and that when we hear God speak regardless of what God has to say, we simply get up and obey. He's a man of faithfulness. But next, I want us to see in this story of Joseph what I call the message, this, this message that he gives this man. Come back with me to Matthew chapter 1. And I would say to you that the message that Joseph receives from this angel is filled with three years' worth of seminary theology. I mean, there's theology at every turn. Deep theology that we cannot... We cannot mind the depths of this theology today, but perhaps we can see three significant doctrinal concepts in this message. Number one, it's the doctrine of the virgin birth. Come back to verse 18, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. When you read Matthew's account of the birth announcement, ladies and gentlemen, there is less less spotlight in the story placed on Mary's virginity. Oh, there is some. Look with me, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We're going to get back to that verse in a minute. There is in verse 23 this mention that Mary is a virgin to prove the virgin birth. But in Matthew's gospel, the spotlight shines on the fatherhood of Jesus. To prove the virgin birth of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean by that. Come back with me to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Beginning in verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus is given for us in these first 17 verses. And, and there's a phrase repeated throughout these 17 verses. Someone is the father of someone else. Look with me verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here it comes. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah. Do you, do you see how important it is for Matthew that we understand who everyone's father happens to be? Verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez, and, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And it goes on and on and on until we get to verse 16. Look what happens in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph. And how is Joseph referred to? The husband of Mary. 
Nowhere in the text, though it's been repetitive, so-and-so is the father of someone else, and he's the father of the second generation, and he's the father of the third generation. But when we come to Joseph, Joseph is not mentioned as the father of Jesus. He's simply the husband of Mary. Now, we see this same concept repeated over and over. Come with me, if you will, for Matthew highlights the phrase Son of God often in his gospel. Look with me, if you will, chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. We're talking about the virgin birth. Listen to how Jesus is referred to. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, not the Son of Joseph, the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Look with me, verse 6, same chapter. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Look with me, if you will, chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were roaming out of, uh, coming out of the tombs. They were extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Ladies and gentlemen, you can, you can go home today and sit in your recliner and read through Matthew's gospel. And at every turn, Matthew is referring to Jesus as the son of God. Matthew wants us to understand the virgin birth of Christ, but he doesn't do it through the lens of the Virgin Mary. He does it through the lens of who is the father of Jesus. And so in the genealogy, Joseph referred to not as the father of Jesus, but the husband of Mary. All throughout the gospel, he refers to Jesus not as the son of the carpenter or the son of Joseph, but the son of God. But the crowning moment of the virgin birth taught in Matthew chapter 1. Come back with me, if you will, verse 18 and then verse 20. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, here it is, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth of Christ, told through the lens of fatherhood. Not only does the angel mention the virgin birth of Jesus, he also mentions the wonderful incarnation of Christ. Look with me, verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Why Emmanuel? The biblical writer says in the last phrase, which translated means God with us. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about your theology. There's so much of New Testament theology, it is so hard for me to wrap my mind around. I believe it because I see it in the Word, and the Word is inerrant, and the Word is authoritative, and the Word should govern my life, and so I see it in the Word and I embrace it. But there's so much about New Testament theology, it's hard for me to understand. 
I don't understand the atonement. I don't understand how Jesus Christ would suffer and die a horrendous death on Calvary's cross because of my sin, but I know that's what Scripture teaches, therefore I embrace it. I don't understand the resurrection. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around someone who loses their life and three days later comes back to life. I've never seen that in my lifetime, but I see it in the text. Therefore, I embrace it as truth. But when we come to God with us, I don't know how to wrap my mind around that. That God left the throne room of heaven that God left his majesty and his glory in heaven in the second person of the Trinity, and he came to earth, born in a manger, as a seven to eight pound, innocent, helpless baby. I don't understand that. But I embrace it. Because the scripture says that child is God with us. When Mary changes his diaper, I don't understand God with us. When Mary feeds him, I don't understand God with us. When Jesus is learning to speak his first words and to take his first steps, I don't understand God with us. But the text assures me that is biblical truth. The incarnation, God with us. There's one more theological point that this passage of Scripture heralds for us. It screams for us to embrace this morning, and that is the doctrine of salvation. Come back to verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. Speaking of Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The word Jesus meaning Yahweh will save. You shall call him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The word save there means to save from certain destruction. Have you ever been in a situation where it was certain you were a goner? You ever been there? I was there as a child. At the end of this month, I turned 60 years of age. Someone say you look 30. Someone say that. 60 years of age. I don't know where the time's gone. But when I was just a child, before I learned to swim, back in those days, and if you're 60, you know what I'm about to say, we didn't have floaties. You, you, you know, you put a floaty up the sleeve and you blow them up and it keeps it. We didn't have those. We had this thing called the bubble. It was this big egg-shaped piece of styrofoam on a web belt, and you would put the styrofoam in the small of your back and the web belt, and, and it was supposed to keep you... Anybody remember those? I'm not sure what my parents were trying to tell me because the bubble would float and... But they had me with a bubble. We were out at the lake. Dad had called us in from swimming. My two brothers were in the boathouse changing into dry clothes. Dad was changing into dry clothes. And I discovered... This was my opportunity to swim without the bubble. And, and so I checked to make sure the doors were closed and they couldn't see what was happening. And I just began running toward the end of the dock, the pitter-patter of my little feet. And I got to the end of the dock and I sailed out into... Have you ever done anything and you thought, 
I shouldn't have done that. I mean, when my feet left the dock, I thought, I shouldn't have done that. I hit the water, and you know exactly what happened. I, I went completely down to the bottom. of. The, I didn't know how to swim. I didn't know how to dog paddle. I, I just went to the bottom of the lake. When my feet touched the sand at the bottom of the lake, I pushed off, and when I came through the, the water, I grabbed all of the oxygen I could possibly grab into my lungs, and I went down a second time. We repeated that several times until finally my lungs seemed like they were burning. It seemed like I was about to surely perish in my young mind. And I pushed up one last time to get one more gasp of oxygen before I knew I was dead. And a big hand caught me by the nap of the neck and pulled me out of the water onto the dock. It was not my father. It was my father's friend. My dad got his hands on me later. <laughs> Never did that again. But my dad's friend saved me from what I thought was certain destruction. I had gone down once. I had gone down twice. I had gone down a third time. I had gone down for what I thought was the last time. I thought as a young child I was going to die and he pulled me from certain destruction to life. This passage of Scripture says to us, ladies and gentlemen, that Mary gave birth to a son who would save us from certain destruction. And then the Scripture mentions for us, it names for us the cause of that destruction in our lives. Come back to the text. Verse 21, he, she will bear a son you shall call his name Jesus. He will save. He will save from certain destruction. His people, here it is, from their sins. What will destroy us? Famine? No. Pestilence? No. A contagious disease? No. A lack of finances? No. What will destroy us? Our sins will destroy us. And he will save us from the certain destruction of our sins. The word sins that's used there, ladies and gentlemen, is an archer's term. It means to miss the mark. All too often we think of sin as something extremely heinous, murder, rape, something violent that abuses someone. We, we naturally put that in the category of sin. Sin is simply the fact that you've missed the mark. God has a mark for all of us. He has a bullseye for all of us. His, his mark is perfection. It is the lifestyle of Jesus that is sinless. His mark is for us to go through life without ever violating any of his laws. But the Bible tells us for all have sinned. We've all missed the mark. The Bible tells us that in my life and in your life, there are attitudes that miss the mark. The Bible tells us there are actions that miss the mark. The Bible tells us that in your life and in my life, there are words that flow from our lips that miss the mark. We're not the spouses God wants us to be. We're not the parents that God wants us to be. We're not the co-workers that God wants us to be. We're not the church members that God wants us to be. We have missed the mark. And the Bible says because we've missed the mark, we deserve to be destroyed. But there was a child born 
in Bethlehem's manger 2,000 years ago to save us from certain destruction. To reach down when we're in the midst of our sin that's destroying us, our sinful thoughts and actions and vocabulary and attitudes, and to pull us from death to life. And that child's name is Jesus. How does Jesus do that? He, he grows from being the babe of Bethlehem and he becomes the Christ of Calvary. And there that young babe who is now a man who has lived a sinless life stretches out his arms and his feet and his body on a Roman cross and he sheds his blood and he gives his life for that which we may not understand, our atonement. He pays for our sin with his blood and his blood covers our sin from the sight of a holy and righteous God and through faith in Jesus Christ, our sin is forgiven and we are snatched from destruction to life through Jesus Christ. We look in Matthew chapter 1 and we see the angel's message to Joseph. Oh, he's fair. He's a man of faith. He's faithful in the way he responds to the commands of the Lord. But perhaps the greatest aspect of this story is that Jesus came to save us from our sins. The doctrine of salvation. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. So how do you respond to that story? Do you reach out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you? Or do you ignore him, turn, turn a deaf ear to the message, a blind eye to the text? And do you allow yourself to go down one final time in destruction? He reaches down from heaven this morning. He's waiting for us in faith to simply say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I turn from my sin and I turn to faith in you. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that you're the sovereign of my life and I long to live for you each and every day. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Lord Jesus, save me. With the commitment of the heart like that, the Lord Jesus Christ takes us from certain destruction to life everlasting in the twinkling of an eye. This morning, if you're here, you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. In a moment, we'll stand together. We'll sing, and when we do, I'll be here to wait and pray with you, to share with you so that you can come to Christ this morning, this babe of Bethlehem, this Christ of Calvary. You can come from destruction to life through faith in Jesus. Maybe you're here and your church membership is somewhere else. God is leading you even in the midst of this interim season to unite with this church family who will love you and help you to grow like Christ. Would you come? Maybe you want to come to this altar and simply on bended knee pray and say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you saved me. And thank you that you'll save others. This altar will be open for prayer. Jesus, we, we thank you for all that you did at Calvary for us. We thank you this morning. We realize the story of Calvary begins 
in a manger. Thank you for the virgin birth. Thank you, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for saving us from certain destruction. We ask that you would speak to hearts this morning and that hearts would respond. And we ask that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Register, interim pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, visit us on the web at ebcraleigh.com.